Well, um, let me introduce you to my new best friend. There you go, my brand new custom knee brace. I, I uh, had a couple of meetings with some surgeons over the last month and discovered through consultation with them that an old knee injury that I experienced more than 20 years ago had actually been uh, mistreated when it originally happened, misdiagnosed, and uh, the corrective surgery wasn't the right surgery. And, uh, and so for the last 20 years, I've been living without an ACL. Uh, and, and now uh, my doctors are telling me that my knee is so full of arthritis that there's really um, nothing that they can do anymore. In fact, uh, both surgeons said exactly the same thing when I was talking to them about my future prospects for physical activity, because it's a really bad thing. Um, and they said, you've basically retired from everything that doesn't take place on a bike or in a pool. That's, that's it, which was sort of depressing uh, to hear. I got in the car. I was in Hamilton. I got in the car after the appointment. I called Krista from the car and said, you know, this is what the doctors have said, nothing that doesn't take place on a bike or in a pool. And, and she said, wow, that sucks. And so hung up. And I drove home. By the time I got home, I love my wife. By the time I got home, because she was at work, there was an email in my inbox from her that said, I found a spinning gym. And it's not that far from our house. And I've already enrolled you in their two-week trial period. Here are your login credentials. Go on to their website and sign up for three classes this week and three classes next week. And thus, uh, my new career as a cyclist has begun. <laughs> Because I'm not a cyclist. I have done a lot of running. Uh, I have not cycled. Um, I'm, I'm, when I say I'm not a cyclist, I bought my first bike in 35 years last summer because I now have kids that ride bikes. And if we're going to be a family during the summer, I can't run beside them. So I need <laughs> a bike. Um, so I'm just brand new into cycling. I'd never been to a spinning class before. So I was really nervous when I showed up to the first class at the gym. Because I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what the workout was going to be like. I didn't know what the bike was going to be like. Um, but honestly, my biggest concern, I didn't know what the people were going to be like. Right? Every community, every gym, every activity draws its own peculiar crowd. Right? I spent a lot of time with runners, but not so much time uh, with, with cyclists. And, and, I, and I walked into the gym wondering, like, what kind of community is this going to be like? Is this going to be the kind of place where I feel like I can fit in, where I feel like I can... Um, I can be a part of what's going on or is this going to be the kind of place where I'm just not at all going to connect with these people? Because if I don't connect with these people, um, I'm not going to be a part of this gym. And that's just the way things go, isn't it? That, that regardless of the exercise, regardless of, the, of uh, whatever it is that you're involved in, it's actually the community of people that's going to make or break your experience. It's going to actually have you continue to participate or basically bail on the entire thing. It's not just true at the gym, whatever gym you go to or I go to or whatever. It's true, it's true in sports, right? We live in the Niagara region, so people ask me all the time, because they know in football I'm a Cowboys fan, in hockey I'm a Red Wings fan. They say, how come you're not a Bills fan? How come you're not a Leafs fan? And my answer is always the same. You know why I'm not a Bills fan? Bills fans. That's why I'm not a Bills fan. You know why I'm not a Leafs fan? Leafs fans. That's why I'm going to go listen to five seconds of sports radio in this area. It drives me bananas. I could never cheer for these teams, not because of the teams, kind of because of the teams, but mostly because of the fans. The fans have caused me to reject the entire 
idea. It's true in television. There was a day a number of years ago when all my friends were talking about the greatest television show that had ever been made. It was called Lost. And everyone was all hyped up about Lost. you got to watch Lost. If you're not watching Lost, you're an idiot. And there's ghosts and smoke monsters. And I'm like, I'm not watching this conversation. These people are driving me nuts. And so I made a commitment. I'm not watching Lost until everyone was done with Lost. And then Chris and I watched it privately by ourselves. But it was like the whole conversational community just turned me off of the whole idea of watching Lost. The same is true, sadly enough, about church. The same is true about church. That there are people who actually don't even seriously consider a life of faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason is because the Christians, they know Gandhi is famous for saying, I, I really, I love your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. And that's, what we're going to dig into this morning, why this happens, and what we're going to do about it. As we explore this series, The Five Deadly Sins of Church, um, that we started last week, we're talking about what it means for Jesus to build his church, the kind of people he's going to build his church on. Um, Or more precisely, like Jeff said last week, I so appreciated the kind of people he's not going to build his church on. Kind of actions and attitudes and behaviors that are just fundamentally incompatible with what he's about and who he is and, and what he's doing in the world. And so uh, we call them the five deadly sins because Jesus is deadly serious about this stuff. Actually, four times in these five passages, Jesus actually warns people about the judgment of God that falls on those who ignore the teaching that he's describing in this passage. Last week, Jeff opened it up. In the first week, I loved his talk. He talked about humility. Jesus says, if we're going to be the church that Jesus wants to build, we're going to be a church built on humility, where people change and become like a little child who is not only insignificant and small and has no status in community, but like Jeff pointed out last week, much more importantly, doesn't care that it's insignificant and small and marginalized in the community. A small child does not care about their status, and that's the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to, the kind of humility that doesn't think less of ourselves, but the kind of humility that thinks about ourselves less, that just doesn't care. And the proof is in the pudding of your willingness to invite other people who are small into relationship, into your life, into your home. Jesus says that the evidence of humility is being being willing to welcome other people who are marginalized and weak and vulnerable and ignored by everybody else. Because kids aren't status seekers. They don't base friendships on who can increase their status, right? Kids are too small to look down on anybody else. They don't notice skin tone. They don't notice socioeconomic factors. You like red trucks. I like red trucks. Let's be best friends. And it's that kind of humility that's willing to embrace everybody That is the kind of stuff that Jesus builds his church on. Well, this morning we're going to look at the second factor of Jesus building his church. It starts in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. If you have a Bible, I'd love for people to bring their Bibles for this series. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, open it up to Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, where Jesus says this. It's pretty harsh. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble. That phrase, to cause someone to stumble, in the Greek is is a single Greek word. It's skandalizo. And we get our English 
word scandalize from that word. It's, it's rooted in a Greek noun, a scandalon, which is basically a trap or a snare. It's a device that's used to capture an animal or a creature alive. And the purpose of the trap or the snare is to prevent the animal from doing whatever it is that uh, it would naturally desire to do, right? So a skunk trap is a scandalon, right? It captures the skunk alive and prevents the skunk from doing what it wants to do, which is root around inside your garden. A fishnet is a scandalon. Right? It captures the fish alive and prevents the fish from doing what it wants to do, which is to swim in the open waters. A police barricade or a spike belt is a scandalon. It captures the criminal alive and prevents it from doing what it would otherwise naturally want to do, which is to escape and continue to perpetrate crime on society. That's what a scandalon is. And the whole point of the scandal on or the whole point of scandalizing, causing someone to stumble is this. Anyone who engages in behavior, in actions or beliefs, attitudes or words, that makes it harder, that prevents people who are seeking to live a life of faith from actually living that life of faith, that that's, Jesus says, that is absolutely forbidden in the church. Any kind of behavior that makes it harder for somebody to pursue or persist in a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Any kind of behavior that makes it harder for somebody to seriously consider putting their faith and trust and love in Jesus Christ and living their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said anybody who behaves, who engages in the kind of attitudes or actions, words or deeds that make it harder for other people to seriously consider faith in Christ, that person, Jesus says, should just take a big rock and tie it around their neck and go jump off a bridge. He talks about this large millstone. We don't have millstones in our culture, but I have a picture of a millstone. We'll put it up on the screen. The, the millstone is that stone disc that's kind of facing you in the picture. It's connected to the donkey by a, a stone or a, by a, a wooden rod, and it's how they mill the grain. They put the grain in the basin there, and as the donkey walks around in the circle, the stone rolls and it crushes the grain or whatever. Jesus is saying, that, that's the millstone, that big disc that's rolling on top. And Jesus says, if you're the kind of person whose actions or attitudes, whose words or deeds make it harder for somebody to seriously consider a life of faith in me, or to persist in a life of faith in me, you should probably just take that stone, tie it around your neck, and jump off a bridge. Now, he's not seriously advocating self-harm or uh, somebody taking their own life. Jesus is using hyperbole, exaggeration, to demonstrate what an incredibly massive deal this is. That we would behave in such a way that actually repel people from considering following Jesus. And he underlines that in the very next verse, verse 7. He says, woe to the world. I'm brokenhearted for the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person. Beware if you're the person through whom those things come. This is serious stuff that we would engage in behavior that makes it harder for somebody to pursue a relationship with Jesus. What kind of behavior makes it harder for somebody to pursue, repels people from Jesus rather than attracting him to them. I think there's lots of things we could talk about. But I think some of the ways that we choose to live our faith for ourselves actually serves to repel people from considering Jesus. I think some of the sin that lingers 
in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ is because you absolutely agree with Gandhi when you say, I just can't stand some of the Christians that I know. Uh, and maybe you're somebody who's actually said the phrase, why would I go to church or why would I spend too much time in church? Because it's just filled with hypocrites. If you've ever heard somebody say that, all they're really saying is, there's no reason for me to go to church because the people that I know in the church are as bad or worse than me and all my friends, right? Their, their sin is as bad in the church as it is anywhere else. Right? Going to the church, you know, they'll say the church, well, Jeff was talking about this last week, the church is as filled with pride as anybody I know. Arrogant with their opinions online and offline or all this status seeking and whatever that self-promotion that goes on or, or lust as bad in the church as it is outside the church. The way people in the church you know, engage with pornography on the internet, the way people engage in sexting and other inappropriate behaviors um, with people who aren't your spouse, people who um, objectify members of the opposite sex, people who are as loose with their sexuality as anybody outside the church. Like it happens in the church and people see it and they say, why on earth? They behave no differently than I do. Why would I become a Christian? Right? Look at greed. They're just as, um, they're just as consumed with consumption as luxury as, as my friends are. Look at anger. They're just as petty and vindictive and unforgiving and bitter as me and my friends are. Why would I get involved with a bunch of people who are basically no different than me? That repels people from Christ. Think about way at the other end of the scale, the way our religiosity repels people from Christ. Um, Back in the 90s, there was a Saturday Night Live character called the Church Lady. I imagine many people aren't familiar with the character. Put a picture of it up on the screen. The Church Lady is Saturday Night Live's caricature, parody of the most religious Christian person uh, you know. And this was a popular character for many years in the 90s. Actually, Dana Carvey just brought it back so the church lady could discuss election issues with Donald Trump and Ted Cruz on Saturday Night Live in February or March, not, not that long ago. But it's an absolute parody of what it means to be a Christian, right? In the way that some Christians live their faith with such legalism. It's a whole, the whole thing is based on rules, on do's and don'ts. It's checklist Christianity that leads to this kind of holier-than-thou spirit that pervades every conversation that they have, where they look at the, the pettiness and the argumentativeness in the church. People who think it's their job to patrol the borders of appropriate belief and practice and hand out citations and judgments and punishments on people who are uh, violating their thinking, you know, who don't align with what they think proper Christians should do. You know, you know drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with those who do, and I'm going to I'm gonna, we're going to get into fights about ways that I disagree with your behavior. We're going to get into fights about the ways that we disagree about what we believe. Or they look at the narrow-mindedness or the small-mindedness or the closed-mindedness of people in the church. We just cloister together in our own little schools, in our own little bookstores, our, got our own little radio stations, and we, you know, we kind of stick together with our own little people so we don't get contaminated by the rest of the world, by the new ideas and new perspectives that the world has on like, like, it's just, people look at that. They look at people living out this severe religiosity and they say, I, why would I want to have anything to do with that? I think some of the ways that we repel people from faith is not just how we live it for ourselves, but how uh, we engage the rest of our world in faith. But somehow the reputation of the church in culture is that the church is a place of hate and oppression 
and violence and prejudice. Right? Never mind, you know, the classic, the wars of religion, the church is responsible for the inquisitions and the witch trials and, um, uh, uh, and the crusades and all of that kind of violence perpetrated in the name of Jesus historically. Or never mind, you know, the Catholic issues with priests taking advantage of little children and the church you know, protecting the perpetrator and exploiting the victim, like all that stuff that just is reeks in culture. But the way the church is implicated in racism, right? The church, which historically defended slavery out of scripture. The church, I, I don't know if you have ever heard of the moral majority movement. It started in the 60s and was popular into the 90s. And it was basically conservative Christian people banding together to try and change society, the moral majority movement was founded on a core issue, a single core issue that they were going to fight for in American society. And it wasn't abortion, uh, though that became a talking point later on. It was racial segregation in the schools. They wanted to reserve the right for their white Christian kids to go to school with other white Christian kids, to not have to go to school with people of color. That was the church that did that. And before we start wagging our fingers at our Brothers and sisters south of the border, remember it was Christian parochial schools that committed the cultural genocide on First Nations people here in Canada that was justly condemned by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, a commission just recently. The church did that. The election issue in the States, immigration with Muslims, Mexicans are, you know, rapists and uh, and murderers and whatever. And it's the church that's endorsing that agenda in large segments of the country. In our own country, the election issue was the niqab and the Muslims' issue to freedom of religious expression and the church was behind restricting that. Like, just think about how the church is being portrayed. The church's relationship with the LGBT community. On the front line of the culture wars against uh, equal marriage rights and transgendered bathroom rights and whatever you think about those things, the way the church is handling itself in that conversation is, having, is resulting in the church being portrayed as bigoted and prejudiced. Never mind people who self-identify as Christians spraying participants in the pride parade with urine water out of their spritzer bottles. Right? That's the church that's doing that in culture. No wonder people are repelled from Christ. And, and I'm assuming, I'm hoping that none of us are engaged in those kinds of behaviors, but if people were to speak to us about those issues, would they detect the same underlying attitudes that cause people to say, why would I ever want to get involved with a community like that? I think the way the church has engaged in this kind of exclusivity the sequestering, this excluding of people from our communities. We've somehow arrived at the conclusion that, that finding a church means looking for a community where everybody looks and is exactly like me. Where socioeconomic status and skin tone and age and stage of life and worldview and belief system, that I'm looking for people that is a that community that's as much like me as humanly possible, when in fact that's the exact opposite of the community Jesus commands us to build. In verse 5, he said, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus says the whole goal of the community is to be welcoming children. Those who are alienated and insecure and vulnerable and weak and forgotten and ignored by the rest of society. Those are the ones the church is supposed to be inviting in. And we're going to talk about that more uh, next week. But 
The church is supposed to be diverse. It's supposed to be filled with this diversity of community where we experience unity together. Jeff talked about this last week. Unity together across the diversity of socioeconomic status and across the diversity of race and ethnicity and skin tone and across the diversity of age and stage of life and across the diversity of worldview and belief system. The church is supposed to experience unity in Christ despite the diversity. That's the community that Jesus wants to build. But we build these homogenous communities where everybody looks the same and everybody's expected to believe the same and act the same and, it, and all it does is communicate exclusivity to anybody who's not exactly like us. And people say, why would I ever want to be involved in a community where I clearly don't belong? Friends, I think we could probably go on and on but Jesus' point in this text is anyone who engages in these kinds of behaviors where the end net result is that people are repelled from Christ rather than attracted to it, where people find it harder to seriously consider putting their faith in Jesus because of what they see in the church. Jesus says anyone who behaves in that kind of way, those kinds of attitudes and actions and words and deeds, they're just way outside of anything that I have ever considered ever been involved in anything I've ever wanted to be up to in the world. So what do we do about it? Well, this is what Jesus gets to in verse 8 and 9. In verse 8 and 9, he says this, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, to be scandalized, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life, eternal life, maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet And to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, to be scandalized, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus says, if you are getting caught up in behaviors that are scandalizing other people, you need to resort to measures that are drastic and swift and severe and sure in order to guarantee that those behaviors never happen again. Um, that's what he's talking about. There were some commentators who said, well, Jesus now changes topic, and instead of scandalizing other people, he's talking about what scandalizes us and dealing with temptation in our own life. I don't believe that's true. There's a tiny word, if you read this passage in Greek, there's a tiny little word, D-E, and it's a connecting word. It doesn't really, it's not translated in our English Bibles because it doesn't really have a translation. Its existence in the sentence is only to communicate that, hey, everything I'm about to say is directly related to everything I just said. These applications that Jesus provides are his application to what to do if you find yourself engaging in behavior that is scandalizing other people and making it harder for them to seriously engage in a life of pursuing uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, what are you supposed to do? Well, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, gouge it out, and throw it away. I think that's my favorite part, right? Cut it off and don't just leave it there. Pick it up and throw it away. You gotta get rid of this thing. Um, What's Jesus talking about? Well, the eye, the hand, the foot, they're metaphorical for the ways that we engage with the world. They're the primary ways we engage with the world, through what we see, uh, through where we go with our feet, and through what we do with our hands. 
And Jesus says, if there's stuff going on in your life and how you engage with life in the world that is causing you to engage in behaviors that's leading other people away from Christ, you've got to take extreme measures to cut that thing off before it completely destroys your soul, before you end up falling under the judgment of God because of the way you're destroying other people's spiritual journeys. Right? Better to cut it off now. He says better to enter into life and to be in a relationship with Jesus and have only one hand than to end up outside of a relationship with Jesus with your body intact. You cut off the hand to save the rest of your life, to save the rest of your body. There's a, a woman in one of our locations who found out recently that she has cancer uh, in her left lung. And uh, my wife is a respiratory therapist, so I think I know some things about lungs. And I think one of the things that she's told me about lungs is that on your right lung, you could remove a lobe or two. You can remove a part of a lung, but your left lung, you can't. It's all or nothing. It's either in there or it's out. And this woman had an enormous decision to make. You have a, can- you have a cancerous tumor on your lung. We need to take your lung out. And you know what? It was a no-brainer decision for her. No-brainer decision. Of course, you're taking the lung out. You're going to remove the lung to save the rest of my body, to save the rest of my life. Now, it wasn't an easy decision, right? It was a hard decision. It was a painful decision. Uh, It's a decision that takes a long time to recover from, to figure out for your body, to figure out how you're now going to live as someone who only has one lung. It's a six-month recovery period. But the decision, no-brainer. The lungs coming out to save the rest of my life. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. If there are things that are tempting, drawing you into temptation to the kind of behaviors that are causing other people to stumble because of how you're living, cut cut something off and cut it off fast in order to save your life, to save your soul, essentially. I think there are people in our community who need an internetectomy. Some because of their engagement with internet pornography. And you need to either get rid of the internet in your home or you need someone to put a filter on your computer where only they know the password so you can't even go to those sites. You need to do something drastic uh, in order to get this thing under control. Some of you need an internet, uh, and I am guilty of this too sometimes, an internetectomy because of the way you behave online and how you comment and the way you propagate your opinions and you just come off like an arrogant jerk. And if anybody only knew your online persona, who you are when you go on to comment on blog sites or comment on Facebook, there's nobody would want to have anything to do with Jesus based on the way you behave online. We just, it just needs to stop. You know, disconnect from social media. You don't need a Facebook account. You don't need a Snapchat account in order to survive. Right? I don't even have a cell phone. I haven't had a cell phone in 13 years. We don't need to be as connected as we think we do. If the internet is causing you to sin, cut it off. I think some of us need a friendectomy. There are just some people in our lives who we know are negative influences on us. They drag us back into old behaviors and old habits that are destructive and sinful. Or um, they, they bring out the negativity and the sarcasm and the cynicism and the ugliness in us. And we're just not strong enough as people to resist the temptation to dive back into the behaviors that we knew for so long in relationship with them. And we need to tell them, listen, I don't think I'm strong enough to be friends with you because my soul is being destroyed by who I am when I'm with you. Someday when I'm stronger, maybe we can be friends again. But you need a friendectomy. You need to just cut it off. Save your soul. Some of us, I think, need an information ectomy because of where we get our information from. 
We surround ourselves with talk radio, Christian or otherwise 24-hour news networks. We surround ourselves with blogs and whatever on the internet that basically all it does is it feeds our prejudice and our bias and it makes us arrogant and intolerable to other people. It makes us the, uh, an uglier version of the person Jesus called us to be and we gotta cut it off. I think some of us need a, a playsectomy. Right? If the mall makes you greedy, don't go. If your neighborhood makes you envy, move. If your job feeds your ego and your ambition in an ugly way, quit. How ridiculous would it be to watch your soul being destroyed just because you couldn't imagine not living in your dream home? It would be as ridiculous as keeping your cancerous left lung even though you knew it was going to kill the rest of your body. Jesus says, take drastic measures to cut off the stuff that is drawing you into the sin that's driving other people away from Christ. It's scandalizing you, and as a result, you're scandalizing them. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Be done with it. And move on in a healthier way. we got to cut stuff off in the way that we relate to other people. This idea of scandalizing others comes up a couple other times in the New Testament, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it says this. Therefore, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes this. If what I eat, you could, you could substitute drink. If what I drink causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never drink again so that I'll not cause them to fall. Right? You have the right to engage in certain behaviors that aren't sinful for you. But if those behaviors, if what you're drinking or how you're drinking it becomes spiritually destructive to somebody else because then they start to make bad decisions about their life and make decisions that are sinful for them, that's your responsibility to cut that off and to say, I'll never drink again. Right? That's Jeff deciding last week that he wasn't going to have a Corona sitting on the table. And apologizing or, or uh, reaching out to people in our community who struggle with addiction and say, listen, I'm sorry if this has been hard for you. I just wanted to make a point. Um, I'm not going to be the cause of somebody else falling into sin. It comes up again in actually at Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Paul says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead of make up your mind not to put any stumbling block, scandal on, or obstacle in the way of your brother and sister. This is about the opinions you hold. Paul says, if the opinion that I hold causes, or the way I hold my opinion causes me to judge somebody else, I got to cut that off. If my opinion is causing somebody else uh, to fall away in their own faith from following Christ, I got to cut that off. Paul says later on, just keep it between you and God. Don't let your opinions become something that makes other people makes it harder for other people to live or pursue their life of faith. This is the point, friends. This is the point, and I can't say it any clearer than this. Other people's spiritual health is your responsibility. Now, it's their responsibility too, but it's your responsibility as well. Jesus holds us accountable for the impact that our lives have on the people around us, on whether our lives were responsible to drawing people, attracting people towards faith in Jesus Christ, or whether our lives were responsible for repelling people from considering faith in Jesus Christ. That is a part of how Jesus judges our lives. So the question for you, and the question that I'm wrestling with this week, is what impact is your life having on the spiritual health and vitality of the people around you? I want the, the band to come forward because we're going to spend a couple minutes um, reflecting on this question.
on the question of who it is uh, in your life, who it is in your circle of influence that you are affecting uh, by the way that you are living your own spiritual life, by sin in your life or religiosity in your life, by the way you're engaging uh, with them or with other people in the world, who is in your sphere of influence, both people within the church and people outside the church, who's within your sphere of influence that you are having an impact on? And is, that imp- is the impact of your life drawing people towards Christ or pushing people away from Christ? And if you're pushing people away from Christ, the question is, what do you need to cut off in order to save yourself to save your soul in order to save them and to save their soul. Spend some minutes now just in the quiet reflecting on those things. And then we'll spend some time closing in prayer.